The United Methodist Church is a connected church. We are connected as a denomination one to another, congregation to congregation. Um, and of course, within our congregations, we are connected to each other person to person. I'm saying this because Pastor Jerry is supplying another United Methodist Church uh, with pulpit supply this morning. And I say this to commend all of you for making that possible. Uh, for a pastor who has a, a single pastor appointment to go on vacation and to allow them to be able to continue to worship. Um, so thank you for providing uh, that space and that uh, ability for Pastor Jerry to do that. And I do know that you'll keep him in your prayers this morning uh, and the congregation that he is sharing the word with. And I'd ask you to pray with me now. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts together be acceptable in your sight through Christ Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mirror, mirror on the wall in my bedroom, den and hall. Oh, what a mess this world would be if not for I myself and me. <laughs> Mirrors will kill you. They'll just kill you in this world. Because to an outsider, the eyes are a window into the soul, but to those of us who look through the eyes, they are a source of great, great distraction, great disillusionment, great deception. So much of the time, the scriptures talk about listening to the word of God. They don't talk about looking upon the Lord. And the truth is, we live in a generation where even the buildings themselves have become giant mirrors. I remember running down Foothill Boulevard in Glendora as a cross-country runner, and one of the teammates, every time we would come to one section, he says, oh good, here come the form windows. And there were windows that were set into the shops at an angle. So you got a, a kind of a view of yourself as you went by, and he would always make sure that he was looking good as he, rode, as he ran by all these windows. And uh, they, that whole section of the street came known as the form windows there. And uh, we got sort of sucked in by him to looking at ourselves out of the corner of our eye. You go by a, a, a mirror, I mean a window shining in the afternoon sun, and you catch a glimpse of yourself, and you straighten things up and make sure everything looks right. There was a woman in a, one church I served. She used to laugh because she was sitting inside of an office that had a mirrored window at a high school. And all the kids would come and they would put on their lipstick and they would comb their hair six or seven inches away from her, her desk. And she'd be staring at them and they couldn't even see her there. But they would just, you know, oh gosh, she had so much fun with the stories she would tell. Mirrors will just kill you because they give you an image of yourself that is already being filtered by your self. We look out through these eyes and we see the things that we want to see in the world. We can look right past the things that we don't. And no more, nowhere is that more true than in the image that we see of our own selves. We have these lofty images of ourselves as deserving of God's grace and as of uh, being generous, and we, we always measure the things that we have done to help others. We never disregard the things, I mean, we always disregard the things that we have done to hurt others. In our ledger, we are more deserving of the grace of God than our neighbors. 
for so many people, even for kings. You can't hear this story about David, this particular cycle with Bathsheba and Uriah and Nathan. You can't hear this story without going all the way back to Samuel. But when the people asked for a king, what Samuel told them was, the king is going to take a census. The king is going to count all of your heads. He's going to levy a tax. He's going to ask you. The king will take and will take and will take and will take from you. And sure enough, even David, after he united the 12 tribes of Israel, after Israel and Judah were united as one, after they set up the holy city in Jerusalem, David began to take. And eventually he came to a place where he was believing all the headlines about himself. He was listening to all the songs that they were singing about him. He was raised up on his own reputation and every mirror that he looked into showed himself to be a king powerful and mighty indeed. And so he saw Bathsheba and he sent for her and he took her. And then he sent for Uriah. And when Uriah refused to be duped into helping this king cover up a transgression, he, he gave to Uriah his own marching orders. Go out. It was his death sentence. He carried it out. Joab carried out the execution. Uriah was dead. Bathsheba came and she moved into the palace. Now she could bear the child, and everyone would think, here is the next heir to the throne. This is the beginning of God's promise that a descendant of David will sit upon the throne forever, and the people will all just accept that this is the beginning of the promise. After all, doesn't the Lord move in mysterious ways? Shouldn't this be the beginning of the long lineage that leads to Jesus? Hmm. Everybody was none the wiser. And David laid down on his troubled bed. And he began to convince himself that the image that he saw in the mirror was righteous. Everything was cool. Everything was fine. If no one else is writing about it in the op-ed piece, I must be all right. If everyone else is thinking and talking about other things, then the thing has blown over and I'm okay. I got away with it. I got away with it. And I can still be king. But the scriptures say that God was not pleased. In fact, the scriptures say that what David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And friends, this is where we are confronted by the one awful truth of scripture. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. A hundred out of a hundred people could vote that something is all right. But if God is displeased, the election is not over yet. We do not live in a democracy. We are in a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit through the grace of God. And that means that our work as moral and ethical and intellectual and physical people, our work as stewards of the 150 to 200 pounds of carbon that God has loaned us from the dust of the earth, our stewardship of that isn't finished until we have finished our work with God no matter what they say about us. 
And so there's one other office besides the priest and the king which will be anointed to serve Israel. He's called the prophet. And the word should go out to every leader, every king, every would-be leader in the body of Christ. Find a prophet and don't leave home without him. The word of God came to Nathan, and Nathan came to see his king. David's a man of action, and David is one who has a, a reputation for acting quickly and then calming down quickly. And if you approach the king with the wrong news, it, it might be a hard day for you. So he comes to David, and the first thing that Nathan has to square with is that David has done something wrong, and God is displeased with it. Now how do I get these two back together? In reality, this is the, this is the one task of every preacher who has ever preached in a United Methodist pulpit, to say, Lord, these are your sheep. People of God, this is your Lord. You two have a lot to talk about. So I'm going to say amen and let you get to it. That's what our worship should be like. And Nathan walks into the chamber of the king in order to reconcile the king to God and God to the king. But first he has to know, does David the beloved still have a good moral compass left in him? Is he totally corrupt? Has he so convinced himself that up is down and down is up, that right is wrong and wrong is right? Has he become so corrupted that he can't make an honest moral decision anymore? So he tells him a story about a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man had many herds of goats and many flocks of sheep. And he was prospering well. And there was a poor man who could barely afford to buy one little ewe lamb. And instead of sacrificing it, he took it into his home and he gave it crumbs from the table to eat and he, he let it drink from his own cup and at night he would lay down next to it for warmth and it would put its head on his chest. And sheep really do come to know their master's voice and it played with his children. It was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to see the rich man and he looked down and he said, listen, all my investments are accounted for. All my herds and my flocks are spoken for. I have not made a provision for this traveler to come and be in my place and I need some resources. So he went over to the poor man's house and he took the man's lamb and he slaughtered it and he fed it to his traveler friend. At this point, King David's knuckles are turning white and he leaps from his throne and he said, where is the man? This is something worthy of death. He's going to repay that man's sheep fourfold. And then there will be other consequences. Show the man to me. Now, this is why not every prophet lives very long. Nathan does the gutsiest thing you will ever see in all of Scripture. He squares the rigging, lifts his head, looks a king straight in the eye and says, you are the man. Oh, you try that today with a politician who's still hanging on to his career. You're going to get fired. You're going to get yelled at. You're going to get spoken about. You're going to get trashed. Nathan doesn't care. Because it isn't a political career that's on the line. It's an eternal destiny. David, you're the man. Now, David has been taking and taking and taking and taking, as Samuel said the king would. 
What follows is Nathan's speech. God has been giving you, David. God has given you. He's given you protection. He delivered you from Saul. He has given you the united tribes of Israel. He has given you a holy city. He has given you wives. He has given you the chambers and the, the, the king's palace. He's given everything to you. God has given and given and given to you, David. It wasn't what you took that made you king. It was what God gave you that made you king. And you looked upon all that God had given you with such scorn that you just went out and did the very, the very things that God has asked you not to do. Now, here's where if you use a PC, a little pop-up window is going to come up. And we're going to detour from the story for a little bit. David has broken three of the ten commandments of Moses. Three of the ten sayings now. Coveting, adultery, murder. And we live in a generation today that says that the Ten Commandments are supposed to be all about personal morality and how we comport ourselves in the world. They are not. God gave these ten sayings of Moses as a guideline for how you and I, who can hardly stand each other at times, can live together peacefully in community. Because some of you are Democrats and some of you are Republicans. I don't know if I pointed to the right side of the, the, the sanctuary when I said that. Some of you have very conservative leanings and some of you are bungee jumpers. Some of you believe one way about a thing and some of you believe another. How are we all going to live together? And God says, let there be freedom for us. That freedom continues down through the Methodist church. Let us have freedom in all the non-essentials and unity in the essentials of our faith. And when it comes to living with other people, there are only a handful of things that we need to remember. Put the Lord first. Keep the Sabbath don't tell lies to each other. Don't bear false witness. And for God's sake, respect one another's things. Let your stewardship go as far as your stewardship. And don't take stuff from others. Oh, and by the way, don't come in the, the year after the wedding of your best friend and take their wife home with you. Respect and love each other. It was God's hope and desire that if we, if we lived this way together, we would learn not only to love, one an, uh, love God, but to love one another. And I'm not talking about tolerating one another or putting up with one another or being silent and giving each other the silence. I am talking about reaching into the cavernous hole in our heart and discovering there a powerful sense of real godly love for one another. The kind of love that would take a lonely prophet and shove him in front of a king and have him look the king in the eye and say, there's one thing left you have to do, David. You have to come square with what you have done in the eyes of God. Remember when Samuel and Saul had this conversation and the first thing Saul did was throw his people under the bus. It wasn't me. It was the people made me do it. And that was the end of Saul's career. And note now, the greatest gift that King David has ever given to the people of God. Nathan's words split him to the core. He is still a moral man. Nathan has held up the prophet's mirror. 
David has seen himself not through his own eyes, but through the eyes of God. And he says, I have sinned. I have sinned before God and his people. And in the saying out loud of those words, the restlessness and the sleeplessness and the weight and the burden of his own life lifted. And he was made new again. We call it confession in our church. And I don't know why, but as the church has gotten more and more and more contemporary, one of the things that we have seen disappearing from the liturgy of the church is confession. It's been replaced by grumpy pastors who level accusations at the world, and I've been one of them sometimes. It's been replaced by platitudinous words and possibility thinking and positive thinking and all this other stuff. And people say, I don't come to church to feel down about myself or to be reminded of all the things that I've done wrong. Listen, you don't need to be reminded about all the things you've done wrong. You can go to Disneyland or Knott's. You can have all the in and out burgers you want. You can repress those memories, but they'll surface in your sleep. I swear to God they will. Your dreams will haunt you after a while. And it just gets heavier and heavier and heavier until you finally just say, oh, for God's sake, it was me. And I can't describe the lightness of that moment to you. I tried with our children. You want to hear another good story? Because there was a man once who said, if you want to impress people, tell them all your successes. But when you want to impact them, Tell them your failures. I was in a brand new church out in Moreno Valley and we were growing like a hot potato. We went from 58 members to 340 members in six years. Wow. Parenthetically, we were a declining church the whole time because we were growing about 8% a year. The community was growing by 35% a year. When you're when the water you're swimming in is going up 30 feet a year and you're only going up 20 feet a year, you know what they call that? They call it drowning, yeah. We were trying to keep up. And there was this beautiful older couple and they asked me to come to a, a, a citywide meeting of leaders in the, it was a who's who kind of a thing, and say the invocation. And I said, sure, I'll be there. And I put it down on my calendar. I threw my calendar in the desk. And I went off, and there was a softball game and a baseball game with my kids that night. And there were a few other things. See, what I'm trying to do here is throw my kids under the bus. Um, and then I just got busy having fun and having pizza. And then I went to bed. It was a Saturday night. I got to get up early in the morning for church. Everything was just great. Until we started worship, and I looked out, and I saw her there with her husband. And this little thought appeared in my head. Um, was last night the night I was supposed to say that invocation? So during the greeting time, I ran down. I said, was last night? And she said, yes, it was. And then I said, was it conspicuous? And she said, there was an empty chair next to me on the dais, and your name was in the bulletin. Ooh. 
Now, so what, right? This became a crisis for me in that moment because I swear to you, every word of my sermon disappeared from my memory. I couldn't remember a thing. And God said, I have something else in mind for you today. So when the greeting time was over and the announcements were given, I said, I have one more announcement to make. And I told the congregation everything that had happened, and I said, I didn't just let down Jack and Rosemary, but I have let all of you down because your name, our church's name, was in the program under my name. And in the name of Jesus, I ask you to forgive me. The chair of Staff Parish, who was one of the biggest smart Alex I ever knew, and probably could have made a joke out of anything, he stood up and with the most serious face he could muster, he said, Pastor Bill, I speak for Staff Parish and for the whole congregation. We forgive you in the name of Jesus. Let's worship. And my whole sermon came flooding back. And we celebrated that day with a joy and a lightness of spirit that you really can't describe. David slew Goliath. Saul killed his thousands. David killed his ten thousands. They sang songs and they, they raised up anthems about him and they just made him this great king and he united the 12 tribes and got past their differences and he did all of this. But what makes him so incredibly valuable to all of us is that he became the living first living example of what you do when you mess up before God. You come to the community of faith, you ask God's forgiveness, and you become restored. And all that has to happen is that you've got to go down through your house and you've got to break every mirror in that house that makes you look like a hero. And with humility and grace, come before the living God of Scriptures. David is powerful for us because he is the one who showed us how to come home first. And afterward, down the long line of his descendants, would come one who would make the point and drive it home in the nails on a cross. But the story of Jesus was always pointing in this direction. Not a story of being worthy in the eyes of God, but a story of being redeemed in the eyes of God by the sacrifice of his son and by his grace and of his love. And all Jesus asks is that we who continue on as his descendants in spirit, that we treat one another with the same grace that we are given by God. That we allow for redemption, that we allow for mercy, that we allow for forgiveness. And from time to time when we see a brother or sister, no matter how powerful or high we may think they are, when we see them struggling with their own self-deception and their own sin, that we come and we look them square in the eye and they say, you are the woman, you are the man. Do we love each other that much? I wonder. I know that every church that is able to do so has flourished. This is the real gospel. This is the power of God's anointing. Not to set us apart or make us stand out, but to bring us together, warts and all, 
troubles and all. I was sharing with my son the other day a a book that I'm reading right now, uh, We Are What We Love by James K.A. Smith. He had this beautiful image that I want to leave with you today. A Scandinavian uh, theologian says, how do I describe grace? This is how I describe it. It's like a young mother, a newborn, a mother of a newborn who feeds the child and cleans the child and holds the child, just like this little guy over here. And when all the needs are met, she just sits and she smiles at the baby. Just smiles. And this is the first input that this child is receiving. Just a smile. And over four or five months, she is rewarded because the child begins to smile back. And the first thing that the child is taught is that there's a bond of love. And it's not an intellectual teaching, but it's a teaching of praxis, teaching of practice together. They learn to love and to smile, and there's nothing the child does to deserve or earn or merit that smile. It's just the benevolent love of a parent toward a child. God has been holding you in his arms, smiling at you all these years, just waiting for you to smile back. And if the world has seduced you into thinking that there are things about your life that you need to hide or squirrel away or cover up or never show to anybody, can I ask you today in the name of Jesus to do as the choir said and just lay those burdens down and come to Christ. Come to him. All who are weary of carrying heavy burdens, lay your burdens down. Receive God's loving smile upon your life the gift of his grace, which has been there since the beginning. And allow your soul and your spirit to smile back. Break the mirrors. Adopt a stance of humility. And God will raise us up in newness of spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.